Good afternoon. Welcome to, I believe, the final session for the National Symposium for Classical Education this year. We continue to be extremely glad that many of you have chosen to join us. We know how draining watching um, and interacting on Zoom for over a two-day period can be. And we're thankful that you all have persevered and stuck it out with us for this year's COVID edition of the symposium. And we're looking forward again to seeing everyone uh, in person next year in Phoenix. I want to take a moment to thank all of our sponsors for the symposium this year. There are some pretty interesting resources that each of our sponsors are providing which you can find in the exhibitors tab of the virtual attendees hub. And again, these are resources specifically designed to support K through 12 classical education. The session before us today or this, at this time is titled The Importance and Efficacy of Great Works in Science Classrooms Using Samples from Galileo by Dr. Michael Ivins. This session is in particular sponsored by the ASU School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership. So in a moment, I'm going to begin Dr. Ivan's presentation and I ask uh, you to also enjoy the quick advertisement for ASU since they were so generous as to sponsor this session. I'm Paul Carice, Director of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. CivEd is our new online platform with a rich set of tools for school students, teachers, and learners of all ages who seek to be informed and engaged citizens in American politics and civil society. Our goal with CivEd is to provide these vital resources to educators, students, and interested community members so that America has more citizens capable of thoughtfully and effectively participating in our democratic process. The school will continue to add more resources as they become available, and we encourage you to learn more and engage with us on our website, scetl.asu.edu forward slash cived. Thanks for your attention. And I'd like to quickly remind you that you may use the Q&A tab on, on our platform to send in questions on a live basis. Uh, we're going to continue to encourage participation in this session. And without further ado, I bring you Dr. Ivan's presentation. Hi everyone, I'm Michael Ivins. Thank you all for joining me. I will speak here very briefly in order that we might reserve the bulk of our time for a question period and a seminar. My hope is that we will take our time looking closely at the passages from Galileo that I'm interested in sharing with you. I'll begin with some general remarks about how textbook learning of the sciences in primary and secondary school fits into a model of classical liberal education, which we too often readily associate with an emphasis on the humanities and the arts. This will include some discussion of why modern science in particular is difficult to place within the traditional liberal arts and how nonetheless the study of modern science is essential not only for an understanding of the natural world but also a condition for the sort of self-knowledge necessary for human freedom. It is in this way I would argue that the study of modern science can share in the highest and most fundamental aims of a liberal education. Especially if our students plan on studying STEM fields in college, uh, it is important for them to develop competencies that will allow them to succeed in courses that require significant technical knowledge. This would include understanding the fundamentals of the variety of scientific disciplines typically studied in middle school and high school, namely what is taught in most traditional curricula. For those who may not plan on specializing or otherwise pursuing further studies in the sciences, the same curricula can be of great value in developing critical thinking skills and the habits of rigorous thought that come from familiarity with what we would loosely call the scientific method. 
as well as in developing the ability to recognize and evaluate empirical evidence-based reasoning. All of these are parts of what makes it possible for our students to take part in a cultural discourse which, perhaps more than any other time in history, requires an extremely high degree of scientific literacy. It is, of course, our greater hope that the study of science will be a source of wonder that will motivate our students in the pursuit of wisdom throughout their lives. If most of what I have just described as the benefits of education in the sciences seems a bit pragmatic, I've so far left out how the study of the sciences contribute to the liberating aspect of liberal education. That is, I haven't said yet how the study of science might make us freer. What I'm about to describe as the benefits of education in the sciences may seem to some as superfluous to the scientific project itself. Nonetheless, these what we might call spiritual benefits may constitute the most important reasons for our students to study science insofar as we are inheritors of a cultural tradition largely dominated by a modern scientific worldview. Typically, the liberal arts are enumerated as seven distinct disciplines, three of which make up what's come to be known as the trivium, namely grammar, logic, and rhetoric, and the other four as the quadrivium, arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and harmonics. The trivium constitutes what are often in a most general way called the humanities, and are more often thought of when we talk about the sort of liberal education which aims to be a liberating education, at least insofar as the powers of speech and reason are necessary for studying the great works on which we exercise that faculty of judgment, which allows us to decide for ourselves what's good and what's evil. But how might the arts of the quadrivium, the mathematical and scientific arts, also be freeing arts? In his description of the ideal education in Plato's Republic, Socrates says that while arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and harmonics may be useful in war and other things, their study is primarily meant to, quote, force us to gaze at that which is and away from that which comes to be and passes away. This makes it, he says, quote, easier for us to gain sight of the form of the good, unquote. Simply put, the study of mathematics and the visible and audible universe is prerequisite to the rational study of the good itself. Though Plato very clearly subordinates the sciences, he means more than merely to say that studying math and science develops critical thinking skills, the ability to think abstractly and reason with rigor. Even more importantly, it is by thinking in terms of the kind of logical and causal necessity that mathematics and science involve that we come to understand that even a world that often seems messy and haphazard may have underlying it governing principles which are changeless, rational, and even beautiful. Seeing such principles at work in the cosmos may lead us to wish to establish such principles in ourselves. But there is some difficulty in equating the science we study in school these days with the mathematical studies of nature in the ancient world represented in the quadrivium. There may be something fundamentally different about modern science, such that it can't simply be considered an analog to astronomy as the study of geometry in motion in the visible world, or harmonics as the study of number in the material world, even though they both have to do with how nature can be understood mathematically. Examining in detail the differences between ancient and modern science is well beyond the scope of this presentation, but such an examination should be of great consideration in designing science curricula for our schools. This would not be, as we might be inclined, to show the advancement and therefore superiority of modern science, but rather for the sake of gaining some perspective that would allow us to evaluate responsibly the presuppositions of modern science presuppositions which are so commonly taken for granted, they are often now viewed as self-evident. So I'd like to share an anecdote about my alma mater, which I hope will be illuminating here. St. John's College is among, almost unique among liberal arts colleges in requiring extensive study of math and science. Even among great books programs, which do include works of math and science, none to my knowledge dedicates as much time to the study to study in the laboratory than does St. John's. 
The seal of the college consists of an image of a balance surrounded by seven open books, encompassed by a Latin phrase which may be translated as, I make free people out of children by means of books and a balance. The balance surrounded by the seven books indicates that modern science is not easily situated among the seven liberal arts. In a contemporary liberal education, the study of modern science is required as a supplement to the traditional arts without itself being a liberal art. Why isn't anything in the quadrivium sufficiently analogous to modern science so as to allow its being subsumed under one of the books represented by astronomy or harmonics, for example? I will give an oversimplified account by referring to the oft-repeated saying that ancient science was about saving the phenomenon. The aim of ancient astronomy in particular was to save the phenomena in the sense that the goal was to make intelligible to the human mind motions in the heavens that appear disorderly, particularly the so-called wandering stars or planets. This requires both observation and the invention of mathematical models that account for the phenomena observed. Galileo, contributing to the founding of modern science as a mathematical project, went well beyond merely saving the phenomena in viewing nature itself as inherently mathematical, such that the inner workings of nature could be discovered and read as if creation were composed by a mathematician. While Galileo's claim implies that nature itself is intelligible in its own right, the ancient astronomer might only go so far as to claim that despite appearances, nature can be made intelligible to man through human ingenuity, though perhaps not perfectly. Let's take a closer look at Galileo's famous claim that nature is written in the language of mathematics. This is from Galileo's Assayer. Philosophy is written in this grand book, The Universe, which stands continually open before our gaze. But the book cannot be understood unless one first learns to comprehend the language and read the letters in which it is composed. It is written in the language of mathematics, and its characters are triangles, circles, and other geometric figures without which it is humanly impossible to understand a single word of it. Without these, one wanders about in a dark labyrinth. This statement marks a commitment that the scientific project since Galileo has maintained almost without question, namely the belief that at the deepest level, the inquiry into nature is a matter for measurement and quantitative analysis. And even if some scientific disciplines don't directly make use of mathematics, it is nonetheless invariably the case that they are guided by the standard of mathematical certainty. Along with Francis Bacon's emphasis on observation, experimentation, and the interrogation of nature, as well as Descartes' insistence on certainty as the primary criterion of knowledge, Galileo's mathematization of nature, to borrow a phrase from Edmund Husserl, has determined the fundamental attitude of scientific inquiry since the beginning of the modern age. I suggest that an examination of the texts in the history of science that mark the inception of the modern age is necessary in order to understand the nature of this commitment and its implications for life. The balance in the St. John's seal symbolizes the means by which we read the book of nature, weighing being one of the most fundamental forms of measurement. We read the book of nature by means of a balance rather than by studying books written by human beings. And yet I'm advocating that we study the books written by scientists in addition to the observation of nature itself. Like a book, however, the balance itself is man-made. The balance or any scientific apparatus is a device that assists us in reading the book of nature, at least insofar as nature is mathematical. But the fact that it is made and used by human beings should lead us to question to what extent the combination of experimentation and technology achieves the sort of objectivity the scientist aims at and how much can we really can, uh, how much really can be learned acting as if science were operating independently of human experience. 
it is thus incumbent upon us to understand how those original discoverers of nature came to see what they saw. Reading the great authors, following their demonstrations and performing their experiments as close to their own prescription as is feasible is the best means we have of allowing ourselves the possibility of freely and competently judging the received wisdom of the sciences. In a certain sense, the views of Bacon, Galileo, and Descartes are already our own insofar as we have inherited from them ideas and even an entire worldview in a ready-made fashion. This happens unconsciously through a kind of cultural osmosis at the level of a general worldview and consciously in education when we learn theories from textbooks. In either case, however, there is a danger that the original insights of these authors remain obscure to us in such a way that we have no means of seeing for ourselves what they saw and of exercising our own judgment in determining the truth of their claims. If we come to see how the great thinkers in the sciences read the book of nature, what tools they used, and even how they used those tools, we not only give ourselves the opportunity, wonderful in its own right, of seeing nature as a great mind saw it, but we put ourselves in a position to be more responsible heirs to the scientific tradition. The study of science by reading the great authors and performing their experiments thus constitutes a kind of self-knowledge which cannot be gained simply from philosophical introspection or historical investigation, but requires an unearthing and reactivating of the original intentions of these authors that have become petrified and sedimented. We can thus, in effect, relive the original experiences which made possible the ideas of, the, of those great minds in the history of science. The importance of this exercise cannot be stressed enough insofar as so much of who we are is constituted by the culture of science in which we live. Becoming aware of and taking possession of this cultural heritage is the first step toward achieving a freedom to make up our own mind and make our own choices. Now we'd like to look closely at some passages from Galileo and provide an example of the kind of close reading that can make for illuminating conversation with our students. I will read a passage and offer some commentary, alternating back and forth a few times before I close and we move to question period and seminar. Galileo's last major work, entitled The Discourses and Mathematical Demonstrations Relating to Two New Sciences, covers a wide range of topics in mechanics and mathematics ranging from discussions about rigidity to early intimations of set theory, but it is perhaps best known for its inquiry into the motion of falling bodies and of projectile motion. It is composed as a dialogue between three characters, Salviati, who is often presented as a spokesperson for Galileo himself, Segreto, who is a receptive learner, and finally Simplicius, the aptly named and somewhat narrow-minded Aristotelian. Dramatic presentation can offer a kind of immediacy for the reader by involving him or her into the imaginary conversation. The dialogue form also helps humanize science, showing that scientific inquiry is ultimately a mode of communication between people and not merely a collection of formulae and theories found in a textbook which can be memorized for a test. Galileo's text also gives us a sense of history insofar as the author himself is taking part in the conversation among the great minds through the ages, a conversation we can find our own way into best by reading primary source materials. This first passage is from Two New Sciences, uh, day four, and the speaker is Salviati. Archimedes and others imagine themselves, in their theorizing, to be situated at an infinite distance from the center. In that case, their set assumptions would not be false, and hence their conclusions were drawn with absolute proof. Then, if we wish later to put to use for a finite distance from the center, these conclusions proved by supposing immense remoteness therefrom, we must remove from the demonstrated truth whatever is significant in the fact that our distance from the center is not really infinite, though it is such that it can be called immense in comparison with the smallness of the devices employed by us. Here we see an example of what we nowadays call a thought experiment, along with some commentary about how thought experiments can be valuable to the scientist. 
In the highlighted portion, Salviati states what is necessary to compensate for or correct the hypothetical in the thought experiment, namely to remove the hypothesis of infinite distance in order to apply the conclusion to an actual real world state of affairs. We should wonder by what right we affirm that what is proved under the hypothetical infinite distance must also be true when the hypothetical is removed to reflect the actual conditions of the world. To what extent can we really say that a proposition based on a thought experiment with a contrafactual premise applies to the real world from which the thought experiment was abstracted? In the next passage, Galileo asks us to imagine not exactly a thought experiment, but how physical objects might behave if the accidents of human experience are abstracted in an experiment with a pendulum. In another example, a disturbance might arise from the impediment of the medium on a pendulum by reason of its multiple varieties. This disturbance of the medium is incapable of being subject to firm rules understood and made into science. Considering merely the impediment that the air makes to the motions in question here, it will be found to disturb them all in an infinitude of ways according to the infinitely many ways that the shapes of the movables vary. In the highlighted portion, we begin to see what is at stake in taking the liberty of positing a mathematical ideal world free of accidents. Namely, only what is mathematical or mathematizable is in the strictest sense knowable. Thus, the falling heavy thing ought to go on accelerating, yet, however heavy the movable may be, when it falls through very great heights, the impediment of the air will take away the power of increasing its speed further and will reduce it to uniform and equable motion. Also, the motion in the horizontal plane, all obstacles being removed, ought to be equable and perpetual, but it will be altered by the air and finally stopped. And this happens the more quickly to the extent that the movable is lighter. The highlighted portion here articulates the phenomenon we call terminal velocity. I would here like to note the two instances of the word ought underlined in the passages. What does it mean to claim that nature ought to behave in a certain way? No firm science can be given of such events of heaviness, speed, and shape, which are variable in infinitely many ways. Hence, to deal with such matters scientifically, it is necessary to abstract from them. We must find and demonstrate conclusions abstracted from the impediments in order to make use of them in practice under those limitations that experience will teach us. And it will be of no little utility that materials and their shapes shall be selected which are least subject to impediments from the medium, as are things that are very heavy and rounded. The first highlighted sentence is the most straightforward statement that Galileo's science treats the world in abstraction from our experience. The sentence following is evidence of what Husserl would call a surreptitious substitution of an idealized mathematical world for the world of lived experience. This claim amounts to two accusations. The first accusation being that Galilean science abstracts only the quantifiable aspects from the world of experience, treating these mathematical idealities independently from that which they originated. The second accusation being that the mathematically derived results are then reinserted underneath the world of lived experience as an idealized mathematical substruction, to borrow another phrase from Husserl, as if what is merely an abstraction were more real than the thing from which it was abstracted. I think this can be seen in the selections from the Assayer in which Galileo distinguishes between primary and secondary qualities, which I included in the handout, and which I would be happy to discuss afterwards. Distances and speeds will, for the most part, not be so exorbitant that they cannot be reduced to management by good accounting. Indeed, I shall boldly say that the smallness of devices used by us renders external and accidental impediments scarcely noticeable. 
The last sentence here looks to me to be an attempt to minimize the threat of impediments and accidents, which cannot be accounted for scientifically. Simply the fact that Salviati notes a certain boldness in his claim indicates that it should not be taken for granted, as we might today, that science is only exact science insofar as it abstracts from the world of lived experience and discounts negligible effects based on scale. Or to consider it from another angle, insofar as science is exact, it is deficient in accounting for our everyday experience of the world. Here we conclude that the practical fallacies and conclusions that are to be demonstrated by abstracting from the external accidents matter little respecting motions of great speed in devices which we usually deal with, or over distances that are small in relation to the radius of the Earth. The highlighted portion here recapitulates what I've been pointing out, emphasizing the negligibility of unmeasurable accidents when they are small relative to the speed or distance under consideration. So again, to reiterate my own concern, I really wonder about the consequences of abstracting from the world of lived experience in the treatment of nature as something inherently mathematical. There are surely advantages in the technological benefits of the modern sciences made possible by mathematizing nature are indisputable. But what are the costs of saying that only what can be known of nature mathematically counts as scientific knowledge? I'll leave you with one last encouragement to look for ways of integrating into your curricula primary sources by the great authors of the scientific tradition. I hope these passages I've shared give some sense of how rich even the briefest passages from a writer like Galileo can be. And perhaps our subsequent conversation will show how fruitful they can be for discussion. So thank you again for listening, and I look forward to continuing the conversation in the question period. Take care. Thank you, here's Dr. Ivins. Dr. Ivins, we have a few questions from the audience and then it's my understanding that we have some special guests who you'll introduce and wish to do a, a bit of a seminar. Mm -hmm. uh, let me give you the questions that I have. And, and those of you in the audience, I do encourage you throughout the, the next 30 minutes to be typing in uh, any questions or comments that you would like to be passed along to Dr. Ivins. Um, <clears throat> we, I will be monitoring those and reading them as soon as they come in. So here's, a, here's a, maybe an easy one. What are some other great works you might recommend other than Galileo mm, uh, in the sure. classroom? Yeah, the, the, the list is, is rather long. Um, I'm putting together a course for the summer on uh, some great works in classical mechanics. And uh, there's a, a work by Aristotle um, called the, or it may be by Aristotle called the Mechanical Problems, uh, and I highly recommend that. It's uh, it's not very well known, but it has some good proofs at the very foundations of uh, of physics. Um, this summer, I used some of the uh, medical te texts uh, in the Hippocratic Corpus. Uh, 
and for biology. Uh, Galen, I think, is also very good in, in biology. Uh, there really are a lot, or almost, I think it's, it's, I could keep going, but that's a start. Okay, that's a start. Um, next question is for, for a working scientist or a working teacher of science, your vision seems to create a, a pretty large time demand, uh, the vision of, of going back to these great works and even performing the experiments. So how much interaction with great works of science is a sort of minimum or a, um, I don't know, what, what, well, how would you respond to that? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. Uh, as much as possible is, is the answer uh, that I would, I would like to be able to give, but I know that there's all sorts of practical uh, considerations uh, whenever you can. And in my mind, that would be between sections or between uh, chapters or segments, try to find a work that, uh, hold on. That's the perils of the intercom uh, teaching at a high school. So my apologies. Um, but yeah, fitting things in, in between sections, short passages. I think if you, if you look at the handout that I made, uh, even this five pages from the assayer can be very fruitful. And that's one night's homework that could easily give you two hours of, you know, an hour or two of conversation, depending on how much time you have. Um, just to find the appropriate uh, work by a great author that fits with whatever is being taught out of the textbook. And in that way, I don't think it would become obtrusive. But I, you know, my greater vision is that the textbook would be in the service of uh, a study of the of the great books. Uh, but then I think the worry is that it would turn into a history of science class rather than a science class, and I, I understand that. Um, pardon. So. <clears throat> uh, Last question before, sorry, I'm having difficulty reading this. Um, you mentioned, I believe, I'm, I'm trying to remember where this question is coming from. I believe in your presentation, you mentioned the understanding the intentions of historical scientists um, as, as one uh, benefit of reading their works directly. And this question says, how relevant are the scientists' intentions such that we are benefited by understanding them? Uh, well, I, I'm wondering if the sense of intentions there is, is wider than I might mean, um, because it is very limited in scope. For example, I think that if you read Euclid, I know it's a, it's a mathematical text, but that to, to divine the intention of the author there is not to uh, find an agenda or you know, find what he's really up to with geometry. Uh, but trying to understand the proof as he understood it, as he intended it to be understood. Uh, and then that's sort of the limit. I think these things get more complicated at the beginnings of modern sciences, uh, at the beginnings of modern science, because uh, there are co more complex and complicated commitments. And those I'm, I'm less interested in. For example, uh, you know, Galileo's uh, or Descartes' uh, 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 potential strife with the church, right? So they have uh, specific uh, intentions in mind that relate to things that are not as scientific. And so I'm less interested in that than trying to, for example, uh, read Galileo's own description of the inclined plane experiment and to perform it as he intended it to be performed. Uh, in, in the most sort of accurate way possible. Materials, you know, um, we have to do some substitutions for, but to try to reproduce the experience that Galileo had himself and is in a way instructing us to have. And, and that's, that's what I mean by following the in, intention. Great, thanks. And that actually, one other question snuck in, and since it seems like to uh, follow directly on, on what you just said, I'll, uh, I'll read it. So 
<clears throat> have you used Galileo's writing on pendulum motion as the basis for students to develop an experiment in that motion leading into oscillations? Or I think I can broaden that just a little bit since you mentioned the inclined planes. Um, have you attempted any experiments with any of your students that from Galileo, let's just say, that uh, you could recommend to science teachers out there? Uh, the answer is yes, but in the future. So I have a planned uh, course for next summer that uh, the students will be faculty, uh, but the idea will be to reconstruct the, specifically the inclined plane experiment, which, which is actually very elementary and not difficult to, at all to set up. And, uh, and the pendulum experiments as well, I don't think are, are very difficult at all to set up. And uh, I'm hoping that we will be able, we'll be able to do that. Um, I've done it as a student in the, in the past in, uh, as an undergraduate in, in graduate school. And I've found it immensely uh, rewarding. And um, so I, I'll, uh, I'll be able to answer better in August. Okay, fair enough. That's uh, my list of questions for now. Okay. Well, so what's Luke, the plan? Yeah. Um, I, I, first of all, I appreciate you hosting and, and giving me a little leeway with, with how to do this. Uh, I, I also wanted to thank the Institute for Classical Education for allowing uh, me to share some of my thoughts and uh, more importantly, the opportunity to try to show how seminar and great books can be of service in the science classroom, because I think it's, um, it's, it's uh, underutilized. Uh, I'd also like to thank my colleagues who I hope have, uh, can unmute themselves and un, uh, unblind themselves. Um, first is uh, Leah Pitkinen, who's been a Humane Letters teacher at Chandler for 14 years or so. Uh, Joey Hiles and uh, James Hall, with whom I teach uh, Humane Letters at uh, Scottsdale Prep. So if uh, I, I imagine not many in the audience had a chance to do the reading in, in advance, if you are able, uh, try to find the link to download the, uh, the PDF that should be on the uh, portal site. And so for referencing the text, you'll be able to follow, follow along. It's only a five page um, piece of the assayer uh, that I'm uh, thinking about primarily, but it would be helpful if, if you might be able to have the text in front of you. Uh, so I'll just go ahead with my opening question and, and see what, what, what people have to say. Um, and that is, how does Galileo expect us to be able to distinguish touch from what we call touch. Oh, and I'll just, as everyone looks down at the text, I'll mention, you all keep looking. Uh, audience, I intend to, uh, as we're channel your voices into this conversation, if you happen to make any comments or ask any questions in the, the Q&A section of CVent. So please feel free to continue putting in comments and asking questions and I will attempt to voice them on your behalf. I think I can uh, point us to a couple places in the text on the, on the first page, which is page 185. Uh, he goes through a list of qualities, uh, shape, uh, that have to do with shape, size, location, time, uh, motion, and the last and uh, well, not the last and list is touch. And on the next page, uh, towards the bottom of page 186, he, uh, right by the 349, he says, uh, produces, something can produce in me a sensation which we call touch. And I think he must be making some distinction, but I'm, I'm not sure how he expects us to understand the distinction, given that he's using the same word. Well, yeah. I, oh, sorry, go ahead. I think the top of 186 is really helpful too, where he's talking about the hand sort of running over something. Um, 
And about halfway down there, he's talking about the sensation of tickling. And he says, this sensation is entirely ours and not at all in the hand. So what we call touch seems to be some, I'm not sure how subjective it is, but some subjective sensation that we have versus just maybe touch in the more scientific way being uh, one body being in contact with another body. Yeah, it seems like he's trying to find a way to distinguish between the things that happen in the world and the effect that they have on the viewer. So as, as James said, there's a way that the, the body's touching each other. There's no sensational element of it. There's nothing doing feeling, but somehow when a body touches us, we feel something, but that's not a reflection of the rock itself. It's not, the rock isn't the kind of thing that affects humans. That, that isn't one of its essential characteristics. That tells us more about ourselves than it tells us about the rock. I'm looking at this passage too, and I see him say on the bottom of 185, suppose I move my hand first over a marble statue and then over a living man. And then he goes on in the passage to talk about uh, the difference in the living body's uh, reception. And I think there's a little bit of confusion I had as I read this because the, the hand, because he used the example of a hand running over a statue and then a hand running over a body, I got a little confused over the hand is a living body too. So maybe, uh, maybe somehow when he shifts to the feather, uh, he's trying to get rid of that confusion a little bit. Um, it seems like he only cares about what the body is experiencing with the hand running over it rather than what the hand is feeling. Does that seem right to the rest of you? Yeah, it does seem right. Um, and so there's something about being able to distinguish the active and the passive, uh, the toucher and the touched. And maybe that's something that only can happen uh, with one or more sensing being. But I, I'm just having a hard time imagining, uh, well, ima understanding how we're supposed to imagine inanimate objects doing the same thing. Is that to say that it's hard to understand how um, bodies touching or not touching one another occurs in the list of primary attributes at first, but then touching is now illustrating um, what is in the list of secondary attributes later. Yeah, I think that's the source of my concern is that you have the same word at least showing up in, in both lists as a primary and a secondary quality. And um, yeah, I think that's where the concern comes from. And in a way, there, there's, there's one spot where Galileo or maybe the translator tries to save, uh, uh, reconcile the problem by using the word contact instead of touch. And that's right in the, the middle of 188, uh, that somehow bodies in the world can make contact, but they don't touch. Uh, but everywhere else he uses the word touch for both primary qualities, which seem independent of our experience and the secondary quality, which is the, the touching and being touched. I've got a couple of comments from the audience. Uh, so one asks, could Galileo be commenting on touch in a similar fashion to how Aristotle would address the knowledge of what is universally known? I'm not sure. I don't know if I would put it as in terms of universally known. I would, I might put it in, in Aristotelian terms in terms of what's better known to us and what's better known in itself. That somehow our, our 
we experience uh, touch as, as sensitive beings first and then come to understand what touch in the sense of contact among the things themselves might be. So I don't know, I'm not sure how I would, I would use the Aristotelian language there. Um, but again, my concern is that the, he's using the both, both same word on both sides of, of a, uh, a distinction he's trying to make. Yeah, I think 187 can be helpful too, because there he uses a number of different words, right? So uh, halfway down as he's talking about smell, he says the other particles which go up enter through the nostrils and strike some small nodules that are instruments of our sense of smell. Then he goes back to talk, uses touch again, but then slightly further down, he uses the word receive the descending signals. We have striking, receiving, touching, all sort of being equated here, used to clarify what touch means in this um, sense in which the objects produce properties in us or sensations in us. Mm -hmm. Could we talk more about the initial distinction he's drawing between the things in themselves and the things as we perceive them? I, I was never clear on it. I mean, some sense, I guess it's self-evident that there's a difference between something that smells and my smelling it. But at the same time, it, the qualities that he describes as being innate in something on, on 185, something that's bounded or has this shape, that is large or small in relation to other things that is in this or that location. All of those things seem to me like we could categorize them as being things that we see, that sight is somehow doing the thing that smell was doing in the other place, that it's really, well, that's not what the thing is doing. It's not actually in this or that location. That's just how we're seeing it. I, I don't know what the distinction is between sight and, and hearing or smell in another place. Could we talk some about that? Well, I, I mean, at least initially, I thought they all worked the same insofar as he's talking about particles striking our, our organs. And so I didn't think the distinction really relied on seeing, but more so this language of imagination and his ability to either imagine these objects without these sets of qualities or not. I also... I wanted to add here, this is in my own voice, not from the audience, that uh, I kind of was reading the, the, the passage on 186, the movement from touch to tickling. And when we get tickling in the picture, that becomes clear that tickling is a kind of human received experience of touch. Uh, and you can imaginatively, it, it makes it easier to imagine that, of course, a non-living body can't be tickled, but we, in our language, we'd say a non-living body, a statue can be touched. It can experience impact and friction, etc. So I actually thought that, and he, he's saying that um, he, he wants to argue that heat is like that. So I, in a way, I almost want to say that any specification of touch, like soft, smooth, squishy, et cetera, that goes beyond just the bare notion of physical impact is uh, like heat that insofar as it is, is not a primary property. So I, I almost want to say that in some sense, you could say touch is a, the, the touch of something to a human body is already a secondary property. And maybe that's what's part of what's confusing about this. Joey, you nodded, nodded. did you agree with that and wanna? Yes, I mean, in some sense, my question is, are there only secondary qualities? Like it's very unclear to me the way in which he distinguishes between primary and secondary qualities. Though he is quite convinced of the distinction, it, it seems to me like the same logic that you would used to categorize something as a secondary quality could also apply to any primary quality. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's sort of what I was thinking. 
Yeah, I was trying to find a way. Go ahead, Miss. Uh, go ahead, Leah. Uh, Joey, is is that because it seems like to detect the primary qualities, uh, the person would be depending on the secondary qualities? I guess I was just thinking that any detection is through the senses. So yeah. you're, the only thing that you can look at is your sense of something else. You can't, we don't actually have access to the things in themselves without the senses. So the only way is through the senses. That's sort of what I was thinking. And then James, you were trying to resolve it with, uh, with it being an imagination instead. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. There were, there were a couple of places where he describes the primary properties in terms of quantification, et cetera. I don't recall exactly where those were. Does anyone know so we can use that to compare what the primaries properties look like? Yeah, in the, in the meantime, I want to point out that uh, James' comment about the imagination uh, in the line right after the, the list of primary qualities. The reasoning is strange, he says, my mind does not feel forced to regard it as a necessarily, uh, necessarily accompanied by such conditions as the following, and then he gives the secondary quality. So it's some compulsion of the mind when he thinks about these attributes and thinks about how they relate to substance. Sometimes his mind inclines him to say they're necessarily connected, and sometimes his mind is not forced to make the connection between the quality and, and the thing. And that, and maybe that's why we should look to see if he has some more kind of reasoning, uh, more quantitative or scientific kind of reasoning, um, you know, because it just seems to be try to imagine a body without these things. And if you can't imagine a body without those things, it must necessarily belong and anything that you can't, you aren't compelled to necessarily attach to the body must not be. So there's gotta be something more to it. Just incidentally, I think this relates a lot to something you said earlier, Michael, in your presentation about how contemporary science is an abstraction. Here, it seems like we're really seeing that abstracted move that since just sensing things as they are in the world is not the same as doing science because there's no way to distinguish between things that are coming from us and things that are coming from the things themselves. And so we have to do this imaginative exercise more or less in our heads through our reason to figure out um, what's happening on the ground in the world. Yeah, that seems right. I, that, and that, that is why I picked this reading. Uh, I think it's a more Color, colorful version of abstraction than uh, the sort of mathematical example that I gave in the uh, in the presentation and in the second part, and it my as I put it in the in the presentation, my concern is that he's he's saying that contact between bodies or touch between uh, non sentient bodies is more real than the touch that uh, an ensouled being, which is a phrase he would use, uh, is, you know, is uh, that contact between bodies independently of a person are, is more real than the experience of touch that a person has. And it, it's just, I don't know if there's any way to understand touch between inanimate bodies, except by analogy with our own experience. Uh, and, and so I think that he's making that uh, move as a kind of substitution of contact or touch between inanimate objects and giving it priority over our what seems to me a more fundamental experience of, uh, of touch. Well, is there, in doing that, is there something going on along the lines of, so I'm, I'm imagining uh, myself watching a couple of billiard balls collide or something like that. And I, I can say they touch, not that they sense one another, but that they do react 
um, what are there's a kind of uh, reaction. Say well, let's say one stationary. What the one that's stationary moves, and that's observable. And is he could he be saying something like, in the case of a human subject that's touching something, all, everything is uh, kind of I don't know. It 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 appears somehow it it coalesces into this sense that it's something more than uh, a chain reaction of motions that is occurring in my between my body and the external object. Because I I mean then then I could say the the influence that bodies have on one another to dislocate in motion etc. It could be the thing that we're supposed to be thinking of as touch. And I guess that's an analogy just because touch is a human word, but it seems like there should be an okay word to use there when we do observe things that are inanimate, knocking into one another and being dislocated and deteriorating, et cetera. Yeah, I follow what you're saying. Maybe it would be helpful to open the, the conversation to uh, thinking about what he uh, means by names and, and, and what the sort of function or status of names. Because I was struck by how many times he, he said that some things were nothing but empty names for, for things. And so maybe that's part of the, the, the same issue, but in a, in a more general way. Did anyone else notice that? There's one paragraph where he uses uh, the word name over and over again. I don't know if this is the paragraph you're thinking of, but on 188, the middle paragraph, um, he says, but we have already seen many properties which are considered to be qualities inherent in external objects, do not really have any other existence except in us, and that outside of us, they are nothing but names. That's at least one instance of that. Yeah, and in the bottom paragraph on that same page, he doesn't call it an empty name here, but he does just say, uh, rather, I think that heat is in us so much so that if we move the animate and sensitive body, heat remains nothing but a simple word. Yeah, it's just, it's the idea that it, these things are just words that is uh, concerning to me. Well, because they're, well, ideally, uh, not ideally, I think for him explaining some subjective experience instead of a, an objective experience, right? And so I'm surprised he doesn't appeal in here to different experiences of the same thing to try and prove his secondary qualities uh, existence, right? So the fact that we can uh, put our hands in a bucket of water and it'll feel cool to me or warm to you, so on and so forth, would be some evidence that the water itself isn't uh, warm or cool. So the warmness is just a word we're using to describe it, but doesn't actually describe it. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's not. The word doesn't describe the thing. The word describes our subjective experience of it. Yeah. And that's going to change depending on the perspective. And that the word is representative of reality, but it's not the actual reality itself. It's, it's like an indication of the reality of something, but it's, it's not the actual thing. But he can't think that that's true of all words. It's just words that describe sensation. Yeah, there's the, the mathematical language whose characters are triangles, circles, and other geometrical figures. So are the legitimate names the ones that can somehow be reduced to triangles, circles, etc.? 
Can all the all the items in the primary list be reduced to geometric figures? Because I thought those were all real, real, not just names. There certainly is something geometrical about at least the first ones I'm looking at, the fact that it's bounded, that it's this or that shape. I mean, that's geometry right there, that it has a large or small relation to other things, location. So yeah, it certainly does seem like there's something mathematical about that in a way that there isn't to, it feels cold. That's not a mathematical claim. Yeah. I've disembodied myself to give a one minute warning for the end of the session. Okay, thanks. Um, it, it, I mean, it occurs to me that the only one that's not obviously quantifiable in the list of shape, size, location, time, motion, touch, and quantity, one few many, is touch. That, seemed, that would seem to me to be the most difficult one to quantify if you asked, how much is it touching? I guess yeah, I can't even, oh, sorry. Well, I can't even understand why he bothers putting that one in the list at all. It seems like he could have just left, left it out. And uh, I can't actually, upon thinking about it, understand how whether or not something is touching something else is proper to the, the body. It seems incidental to me whether something's touching something else. So that's a second reason why I have no idea why it's in this list. <laughs> But you would say that the other ones are essential, more obviously essential? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know that I can explain how they are, but they, they do seem, yeah, more essential and not incidental. It's not possible to imagine a thing without a shape, but it is possible to imagine it without touching something else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you consider all the air particles being around something, right? So it seems like maybe touch is something it's hard to imagine it without. It's just we don't see those particles. So it's. Well, I think we're going to have to call it a day uh, in respect to everyone's time. I appreciate all the, the viewers that uh, I don't see that came to enjoy this. And I definitely appreciate my colleagues here for joining me in this. Uh, brief seminar that's just the beginning of a, of a, a longer investigation apparently. So uh, thank you all for being here and uh, everyone take care. All right, thank you. Dr. Ivins, hang on just one minute. There were two really important questions I think from the, the audience while this was going on. I didn't inject them because they were sort of meta questions. Um, so. I'm going to tell you what they both are, and then I, that'll be it from me. And I'll let you respond to both of them together, and we'll call it the end of the session there. So the first is that we have a teacher in the audience who's reading Galileo with their 10th grade physics class tomorrow. Um, is there a book that explains in plain English what's being said next to the paragraph? And this person says, uh, I think they're thinking of something like a Norton critical edition or something of that sort that would help with some of the phrasing. So wait, let me tell you the other question and then I will um, disappear. The other question is about what we were just doing. This style of the seminar is kind of classical, a classical classic seminar, which is great, but it strikes me as philosophy and not science. So would you really have a seminar like this in a science class, this person asks? I would definitely, yes, have a seminar like this in a science class, not on a, a daily basis, but uh, as a kind of, uh, like I said, be between things, uh, uh, maybe to keep things from touching so much. Uh, an interlude that's more philosophical might help students get perspective on the course content. And that I, I think is tremendously important for the students to be reflective. Um, I think if we were able to uh, do more of Galileo's texts, you would get more of the nitty gritty science that, that you want. You would get 
mathematical demonstration and um, and experimentation and, and things like that, albeit in a form that nobody is used to. Nobody's used to uh, a dialogue that uh, contains mathematical proofs and experiments and things like that. Um, so yeah, I would, I would definitely uh, use texts like this uh, in, the, in the science classroom. And likewise, I would use um, science, great works in the sciences in the humane letters classroom. Uh, if I had more time, I would, I would do Galileo in humane letters as well. Or there's a paper uh, by James Clerk Maxwell on, uh, that has some really interesting things to say about causality. And I've thought about ways that that fits in at, at certain junctures in humane letters. So I think it all, it, it can go both ways. Um, as for the first question, um, it sounds like uh, that you'd need to get a translation. You must have the Italian. So um, get an English translation and that will be your best bet in trying to figure out what uh, Galileo is saying. Uh, but in all, all seriousness, I think just read the original slowly and over again, and it's you'll you'll get a foothold in some part of it, and then the rest of it will open up. Uh, but it, it takes great patience and and care, and it, it might not seem like it's worth it, uh, but the payoff in in the end I think is um, is enormous. So I, I think it's worth it. I wouldn't. Uh, wouldn't suggest any secondary material uh, until you're, you know, well seeped in the uh, steeped in the Galileo for yourself. So, just uh, get a good translation. I guess would be my advice. Okay, I'd like to thank Dr. Ivans for his presentation today, and thanks for our to our seminar participants for being on hand to, even though uh, we couldn't have the entire audience be a part of this conversation, to give a little bit of an example of how working through a text like this would, would, uh, would be. Um, I'd like also now to, as I believe this is the last session of the seminar, to thank everyone very much for attending our virtual symposium and uh, <clears throat> we hope that you found some worthwhile ideas, a mixture of both the practical and the theoretical for real science teachers at real classical schools. And we hope you'll remember us in the future. Uh, the National Symposium for Classical Education will be happening every year with different topics each year. Join us again next year, and again, we hope that we'll see you in person in Phoenix. Thank you, and have a good afternoon. <laughs>